This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of the presidency. I'm John Dickerson, co-host of CBS This Morning. This Thursday, April 5th, 2018, the Masters Golf Tournament begins at Augusta National Golf Club in Augusta, Georgia. If you're a fan of golf, you know this. You have been patiently waiting in your green jacket or maybe even your green footy pajamas. And if you're one of those pudding-headed types who live from sport to sport, then this was a powerful week with the NCAA championship taking place on Monday. Or you may not care about golf at all, but presidents certainly do. Of the last 18 presidents, starting with William Howard Taft, who piloted his ample frame around the tee box, 15 of those 18 presidents have chased the little white ball around the verdant grass. Presidents may come from different parties, be free traders or no, bother with telling the truth or make up whatever piffle comes rounding in their melon, but all differences are bleached away when it comes to the 18-hole march of delight and vexation. Presidents are on for playing golf. What is it about the sport that attracts these men? We may or may not have that answer for you, but... Through this story of perhaps the greatest enthusiast of the game who has ever served as commander-in-chief, we will at least interrogate the question of presidents and golf. So here with the story of Dwight David Eisenhower and how he popularized the game, threw an elbow to the national pastime, practiced covert arborism, and changed the White House grounds and Oval Office forever. Or at least the Oval Office floors, which had to be replaced after the two-term Kansan had so pockmarked them up by wearing his golf shoes indoors. Our whistle stop today is April 13, 1953. The Washington Senators are hosting the opening day of the American League against the New York Yankees. For Washingtonians, there wasn't much reason to hop the cable car to Griffith Stadium to see the hometown team, and indeed they would wind up fifth in the league in that year of 1953, with a record of 79-79. and 79. They would not have a winning season until 1962. But there was one attraction a Senators fan could enjoy in 1953. The president pitched out the first ball at the first game, at the first home game, which was the first game of the American League. Americans didn't see their president all the time the way they do these days, and the opportunity was gleaming like a shiny dime to see the newly elected President Eisenhower, who had only taken the oath of office a few months before. The tradition of throwing out the baseball had been started by President Taft. He started things, apparently, between the golfing and the throwing out of the baseballs, but he threw out the cowhide in 1910 at the Washington Senators' opener. And after that, it was a part of the national pastime itself. Surely Eisenhower would participate. He'd played outfield as a high schooler, and uh, presidents had only broken from this tradition, the Taft norm, in rare cases of emergency or war. But Eisenhower did not take to the mound to hurl the pill. Instead, he announced that he would travel to the site of the Masters Golf Tournament in Augusta, Georgia in that year of 1953. He knew that he couldn't go during the actual golfing tournament, which had been the week before. He'd draw too much of a crowd. So he scheduled a week of relaxing vacation there at the club, where he had been a member since 1948. 
after the Masters tournament concluded, and then he would play at least one round of golf with the Masters winner. Sort of like the Super Bowl winner gets to go to the Disney World, the Masters winner gets to play with the president. This was an affront that he would abandon the Washington Senators. To turn down the national pastime, how rude. He cared about disrupting the golfing fans during the Masters, but apparently did not care about disrupting and breaking the dreams of the poor Senators fans, who he was depriving of a chance to see him. A paper in Georgia defended the new president. After all, they explained, golf has been around much longer than baseball. Yes, gentlemen, but one was created in America and one was not. So why are we here today with General Eisenhower? Well, the game of golf has an extraordinary hold on presidencies. We've already talked about that. We've given you the number who love the game, but there's more to it than that. The game reveals something about the presidents themselves. Some people think it is the ultimate litmus test of presidential personality, revealing nuggets about the fellow's soul that can only be seen through golf or by using university-funded microscopes. If the people wish to determine the best candidate for president, put all the contenders on a golf course, the golf pro Jimmy Demerit once said. The one who can take five or six bad holes in a row without blowing his stack is capable of handling the affairs of the nation. That quote I've just given you from Jimmy Demerit uh, comes from Don Von Atta's lovely book, uh, which is called First Off the Tee, about presidents and golf. Of course, there were dissenting opinions about the game's talismanic properties, its ability to tell you about the inner soul and character of the presidency. If I had my way, H.L. Mencken wrote, no man guilty of golf would be eligible to any office of trust under the United States. I'm not so sure about the spyglass properties of the game of golf. After all, as Freud said, sometimes a sandwich is a sandwich, not to be confused with a sandwich, which is not a hoagie. But the relationship between presidents and golf does contain a deep mystery, which I'm going to try to explore, but which I don't have a full answer for. Why would men who have such a stressful job flock to a game that is itself so stressful, and about which there are books of pithy quotations testifying to its maddeningly complicated stresses? The political journalist Scotty Reston wrote an entire article for the New York Times during this golfing tour of Eisenhower's in April of 1953, saying that a president was doomed a failure in the office if he was a golf nut. The whole piece is a tongue-in-cheek number, but its thrust was designed around the idea of deep personal frustration and futility of the game of golf. Reston writes, golf never was and never will be a solace to anything. It is an anguish in itself, a seductive, infuriating device invented by the Calvinistic Scots as punishment for man's sins. The piece concluded in this way. Several self-appointed experts on golf, politics, and psychology in this community doubt the healing powers of the game for the president. They concede that golf teaches patience, which is a good thing for a man who has to deal with the Soviet Union, but they know all too well what happens to a man who breaks 90. They know 90 being the score. Eisenhower, before taking this trip, said he wanted to break 90. They know he will not be satisfied. They know that he will now want to break 85, and after that, 80, and after that, and after that. Finally, they know he cannot putt, and if you cannot putt, you cannot learn to putt, even if you're the president. One of my favorite writers, P.G. Woodhouse, captures the level of angst that attends the game. Describing a hair-trigger and jittery golfer, all of which, of course, are synonymous, Woodhouse wrote, The least thing upset him on the links. He missed short putts because of the uproar of the butterflies in the adjoining meadows.
Woodhouse also subscribed to the theory that golf is a great Ouija board of the soul, if Ouija board of the soul is the expression I'm looking for. The only way of really finding out a man's true character is to play golf with him. In no other walk of life does the cloven hoof so quickly display itself. So we have that mystery to plumb, why a stressful office drives presidents to more stress in the playing of the game, and we also have the larger question about the presidency and its norms. Eisenhower's little dust-up with the clash between baseball and golf represents a familiar tale. It's a ceremonial norm of the office which conflicts or comes into conflict with the needs and desires of the man. Each man in the office, and, and hopefully one day a woman, shapes that office. But then there are those things un, from under which a president cannot wriggle, including backwards-running sentences. There's an even larger issue than that. The larger question is about presidential productivity. Can presidents be lazy? Should they be lazy? Will we ever let presidents have the relaxation that is necessary to, for clear-headed thinking and the kind of thinking that's required in the job? Or will we require them to be at their post like a watchman, ready to answer any emergency in any second? How much golf is too much golf? This matters for how we think about presidents. Should they be allowed to relax? Because we, we don't really want a cranky chief executive working out his button-pushing finger. But it also matters for how we see the office. If the president is so crucial that he can't get away for just a little while, uh, it might suggest that his White House is too micromanaged. A president sets the direction and then oversees the direction of his administration. At least that's the way it's supposed to work. Do we, as a public, allow this to happen? How do we transfer to a vision of the job that is one in which a president is there for the crucial, most important decisions, but that is not confused with being there every minute like a short-order cook. Or has this question lost all possibility to be interrogated because golf playing has just become a partisan weapon that each side uses to beat up the other? Liberals tweaked George Herbert Walker Bush, and then President Trump bashed Obama for playing golf, and now President Trump clings to the links with the passion of a young lover greeting his intended after a two-week sea voyage. On the one hand, what is old is new again. Eisenhower got grief for playing too much golf, but what is old is also very distinct in that Eisenhower had to play round after round after round of golf on extended holidays at Augusta and playing outside of Washington at Burning Tree. He had to do all of that before it became a real problem, which is to say he is playing too much golf. Ike's habit is, is notable for how extensive it was. He was devoted to it as this president is devoted to Fox and Friends. The point being that a president who played golf half as much as Ike did by the standards with which he was measured should have been clear of the bar of opprobrium. It is very hard to get a drink at the bar of opprobrium, by the way, without being criticized. Here's just how much Ike liked golf. He traveled with a portable driving range, which was once set up on the deck of an aircraft carrier. In the White House gym, he had a makeshift range put together so that he could practice his drives. He installed a putting green on the White House grounds, which is still there today, and he took chip shots out back. Thus wrote Life magazine at the time. The president's eye fell on what others would have thought of as the south lawn of the White House, but which his golfer's eye instantly re-identified. Eisenhower enjoyed golf so much he wore a path from the Oval Office to his little practice area. And, of course, we've already talked about the pockmarks on the White House floor. The 34th president escaped to Burning Tree Golf Course for a quick nine after delivering the State of the Union. He worked the phones at the pro shop at Augusta National in Georgia in order to manage a Middle East crisis, and he played around where he was notified during the round by walkie-talkie 
of the progress of evacuating his vice president, Richard Nixon, who had fallen into a hostile situation in Venezuela. There are times when you read about how much Eisenhower enjoyed playing golf that you feel like there was a round of golf which was interrupted by his presidency. According to one account, and that account would come from David Soule, who uh, wrote a book called Eisenhower, Golf, and Augusta, which is an entire book about his relationship with the Augusta National Golf Course. According to the account of that book, the appointment files labeled golf in the Dwight D. Eisenhower Presidential Library in Abilene, Kansas, show that the president, the 34th president, Eisenhower, played almost 900 rounds of golf during his eight years in office. This total would have easily surpassed 1,000, argues Sowell, if Ike had not been sidelined by a heart attack, intestinal surgery, elbow problems, bursitis, and a stroke. Still, the rough math here is that uh, Eisenhower did about 125 days of golf a year. That's about a third of the year that he spent. And you'll remember, and I won't recapitulate, but you'll remember from the Eisenhower heart attack episode of Whistle Stop, those of you who have not committed it to memory, that Eisenhower was a bit of a life hacker in the way he thought about vacation. When he went to be president of Columbia University, he wrote his brother a letter and said that he was very conscious that he didn't want to become overworked. He was very conscious of the negative and deleterious, to throw in a 10-cent word, effects of being overworked. And so that he would plan to take extensive vacations and regular vacations no matter what he did. That's the way he felt as president of Columbia, and it's obviously something he brought with him to the White House. But as all of those details about the things that were a part of the Eisenhower golf regimen suggest, it wasn't just any old vacation that he sought. He was mad for the game. When he returned from Europe, he became friends with Clifford Roberts, who was the owner of Augusta. He was in 48, and then in 49, his real deep love for the club would blossom, recuperating from gastroenteritis. He spent a month at the club. He was working then for Truman. Truman said, go down to Key West. I love Key West. Love the shirts. Paramble along the beach. Recuperate. It did nothing for Eisenhower. Then he got to Augusta National in 49, where he spent that month, and apparently was upright and walking and hitting the links not long after he got there. Setting the tone for what the next eight years would be like, Eisenhower flew to Augusta the day after he was elected for a 10-day vacation. So we know that Ike was criticized as he headed out the door for his golf playing, but what was the norm when he took the job? Well, the norm was shifting, as we know about so many norms, and I'm going to shift myself. We've overused the word norm. We're going to use the perfectly reasonable perfectly good word in the bag, and that is standard. So we're going to use the word standard because that's the word everybody knows. So what's the standard, both on class and productivity grounds? In other words, did playing golf make a president seem too aloof in 1953, or did it make him a member of the regular classes? And also then, of course, there's the question of productivity. Is he seen to be shirking his job or not? The pre-Ike history is a little murky. Truman, who ran against the Republican Congress in 1948 as the Tribune of the Common Man, thought the game was played by stuffed shirt elitists. Teddy Roosevelt thought the game was not a game sufficient of sufficient manliness, and therefore, for a president to be seen golfing would make him look weak. Teddy Roosevelt wrote a note to his successor, Taft, about stories in the paper that made fun of the girthy Ohioan and his love for the game. I'm careful about that, Roosevelt wrote to Taft, about being photographed golfing. Roosevelt said, photographs on horseback? Yes. Tennis? No. And golf? 
is fatal. Taft defended himself, felt that he had to go out to the public and defend himself on this question. And so in a speech, he said, William Howard Taft, that is, they said that I have been playing golf this summer and that it's a rich man's game and that it indicated I was out of sympathy with plain people. Taft then asked to be heard, quote, before the bar of public opinion on the subject of golf. It is a game for people who are not active enough for baseball or tennis or who have too much weight to carry around to play those games, Taft declared. He believed that it was better to make the case to the public once he had been transparent about his weight. And yet, when a man weighs 295 pounds, he continued, he weighed more than that, but 295 was sufficient for the purposes of this argument. When a man weighs 295 pounds, you have to give him some opportunity to make his legs and muscles move. And golf offers that opportunity. So here we had a president making the case for golf on the grounds of its benefits as an exercise. So you had both Truman saying it was a sport for elitists and Taft getting away with arguing that it was a good place uh, to exercise. And so what was the norm when Ike encountered it? In 1953, well, like many things, Ike made his own weather. Golf may have been a game for the wealthy elites, but Ike's cultural power was such that he drew people to the game. Soul's book on Ike and Augusta opens up with a great anecdote about the owner of a tennis club basically saying all the courts which had been full the year before were whistling empty because all the swells were off playing golf because Ike had made playing golf so cool. In 1953, when Ike took the office, an estimated 3.2 million Americans played golf on the 5,045 golf courses in the United States. But by 1961, the number of American golfers had doubled, according to David Von Atta's book. In that book, Fred Corcoran, an official at the Pro Golfers Association of America, said that Eisenhower's dedication to golf was one of the greatest things that ever happened to the game. The psychological benefits of golfing cannot be assailed. And if assailing is your thing anyway, then you should be at the docks and not messing around with the ball and club. President Obama was not a huge fan of the game itself, but he golfed simply for the psychological benefit, to find time to get away from the crush of the job. It was four hours or so of relief from the poking and prodding of the press and his staff. This is not a new phenomenon among presidents in golf. When Ike headed to Augusta in April of 1953, the New York Times wrote about the necessity for presidents of getting away. Here's the New York Times piece at the time. President Eisenhower's fondness for golf, including practicing iron shots on the White House lawn, and last week's outing to the links of the Augusta, Georgia National Golf Club, is the mild sort of revolt all presidents stage against the confinement of their job, now probably the greatest burden placed on any human in the world. The load has become heavier with the passing years until it has reached the extreme limit of one man's physical capacity to bear. Trying as are the duties laid on a president, most occupants of the White House seem to suffer more acutely from the complete supervision of their personal movements, which goes with the job. Even in the White House itself, the chief executive is accompanied by an agent of the Secret Service to the very door of his private apartment. And a man is always on duty just outside. When a president travels or when he takes a walk, he is never out of sight of a bodyguard. Between the pressures of duty and the strain of the constant surveillance, there develops in every president an intense need for relaxation. I took so many trips to Augusta in the, for the purposes of this relaxation and escape 
that our whistle-stop historian Brian Rosenwald really thinks that we should think of Augusta and the president's frequent trips there and the business of state that he did there, that we should think of it like Mar-a-Lago. Of course, and Rosenwald would concede this or recognizes this, that the, the, the questions of Mar-a-Lago and the ownership and the ethical questions there obviously did not attend when it came to Augusta. Eisenhower had a special house there, though, at Augusta, and it was right along there on the fairway. And those fairways were designed, by the way, by the famed golfer Bobby Jones. How famed was Bobby Jones, and how much did uh, Eisenhower love him? Well, first of all, Bobby Jones in 1930 achieved a feat no one thought possible, which is that he won all four of golf's major championships, the British Amateur, British Open, United States Open, United States Amateur, all in the same year. And then Jones booked from the game, 28 years old. He just bolted. And he said he wanted to design golf courses. So Augusta National was one of the golf courses that he designed. In the Oval Office, the president, Eisenhower, had pictures, along with his golfing shoes and a a golf club, by the way. But anyway, behind him, he had pictures, photographs, presidents. They all do it. He had his beloved Mamie, Ida Stover Eisenhower, was also there. And there was also a picture in the Oval Office of Bobby Jones. For Eisenhower, sports and competition were particularly necessary. He'd played baseball in high school, and when he couldn't make it, when he went to West Point, he played football. But then he damaged his knee. Writing in the New York Times, historian Michael Beschloss explains that when Eisenhower was told he could never play in any team sports again, he was plunged into despair. Life seemed to have little meaning, Ike later recalled. A need to excel was gone. Later, according to Don Von Atta's book, the president reacted this way when he found he couldn't play golf. Today, the president wanted to play golf very, very badly, Ike's secretary wrote in her diary. He peered at the sky during the morning and finally, after another excursion out to the porch, announced, Some days I feel so sorry for myself, I could cry. Major General Howard Snyder, the president's personal physician, said he'd be like a caged lion with all these tensions building up inside him. If this fellow couldn't play golf, I'd have a nutcase on my hands. By the way, not all presidents in that uh, number that I gave you liked the game. Here's Wilson, who played it and who even courted his second wife on the golf course. He described the game this way. Golf is a game in which one endeavors to control a ball with implements ill-adapted for the purpose. But what is it about this game that Ike liked so much and that Other presidents like, I think psychologically, in Ike's case, he was an intensely competitive person. He'd been a poker player in uh, college at West Point and a very, very good one. In fact, he was so good, he had to stop playing uh, because he was a little too good and he was worried that it would get him in trouble. Either the gambling or the fact that he just was winning too much money from from people. So he became a bridge player and was apparently, and Evan Thomas writes about this in his book about Eisenhower. He was an extremely competitive and stern bridge player. So he was just a super competitive guy. So that, and and that was just a part of his nature. We've already talked about how he needed that drive to excel. He needed the drive more than where he was going or to just pound this metaphor in. He needed to hit the drive, uh, which was less important than where the drive went. Although we'll get back to that in a moment. Here's what Von Ada writes about the game of golf and presidents. It is this immovable game's uncompromising difficulty that has appealed most to all of the American presidents. 
Golf cannot be stage-managed or spun. It cannot be tailored by image makers or tallied by pollsters. It cannot be buttonholed or lobbied. And it certainly cannot be wowed by the trappings of the office of the President of the United States. So it is its difficulty that gives it its pull, according to Von Natta, on presidents. It's certainly a pleasant diversion. It takes up so much of the brain space because it's so difficult. You can't really ruminate on other things. But I think the key to this question of why a stressful job would drive you, there's that verb again, to a stressful hobby is that presidents like hard things. They just like hard things that they can put their hands on. They like action they can solve, perfect, and improve, even if in the end it doesn't go the right way, which in the presidency so many things that's the case. But in the presidency, you're quite limited. The president so often has to just sit there and take it. The game of golf is tough, but it's the kind of tough active battle they thought they were signing up for when they came into the presidency. But when you get into the presidency, you learn that you're imprisoned in a job where a raid before you are like a thousand golf balls, but you're not allowed to touch the clubs or you're asked to hit a nine iron from 10 feet underwater in the water hazard. And as a uh, way to just mix all these metaphors into the blender, um, Eisenhower <laughs> tried to assert a little uh, presidential control when he used to play at Augusta. On the 17th tee, uh, there was a loblolly pine tree, which is left. It was on the left, left of center on the 17th, on the 17th, on the fairway, about 195 yards from the green. And every time Eisenhower, who sliced and from watching YouTube videos of his golf swing, he was not the lithe perfectly uh, arranged golfer that Jack Kennedy was. Kennedy was quite a, a pretty looking golfer, pretty looking everything. But um, Eisenhower was a, he was a little like a hack. Anyway, he sliced his shots often and, and he would slice them in such a way that they would, they would zoom off to the side of the fairway, but then they would, they would ultimately get themselves arranged and, and find themselves back into the fairway. The problem was that this loblolly pine was was right in the place where it stopped the ball before it came back into the fairway. So Eisenhower actively campaigned to have the tree removed. And he went to a governor's meeting in 1956 and proposed having the tree chopped down. And the board chairman, Clifford Roberts, who had been with Eisenhower on election night in 1952 and was a friend of his, ruled him out of order and immediately adjourned the meeting. And so the, the pine was there uh, all through Eisenhower's life and it ultimately became... Uh, called the Eisenhower tree. It was uh, killed in an ice storm a few years ago, and uh, so they cut a piece of the tree, and it now is on display, I believe, at Augusta. Not at the Eisenhower Library, but it's at Augusta. So Eisenhower, after playing so much golf, increasingly is criticized in the paper, but he had his defenders, and the defenders made the case that the job was hard and that every president needed time off. And one of those defenders was Malvina Lindsay, and she was a columnist for the Washington Post in a column she wrote called Need of Presidents to Combat Tension. She wrote, President Eisenhower is playing golf at Augusta, Georgia, and Secretary of State John Foster Dulles is forgetting Washington on the island of Lake Ontario. And this taxpayer, for one, is glad. I do not want big, crucial decisions that affect my welfare as a citizen made by men harassed by strain and mental fatigue. Many other taxpayers no doubt approve of these high officials, thus increasing their fitness for their hard tasks. Yet so strong is the old, rural, blue-nose attitude about work 
that some Americans yet do not realize that these tension-ridden times call for a new approach to job efficiency, especially in regard to public servants. Later in the article, Malvina Lindsay tells a story of um, students coming to Washington and learning about the government and what the various things do. And one student was asked why a president shouldn't be around a little bit more to do all the urgent things that a president has been elected to do. And the And the person who was giving them the tour of the White House said, uh, here's how this column picks up. In reply, the speaker told of the tremendous pressure and strain of the presidency, of the great need for anyone in the job to get frequent mental and physical escape from the office burdens. The students saw the point. One saw beyond it. Did the president, he wanted to know, have a time each day for devotion and meditation? The speaker was inclined to say yes on devotion. As to meditation, he didn't know. As I listened, I wondered how long it would take to make the mass of step-on-the-gas Americans realize the need of meditation in a president's life. Selling them the value of golf would be nothing compared to that. Apparently in 1953, they were not too hip to the um. Anyway, back to our April 1953. Ultimately, Ike had to go back to Washington and throw that first pitch. But it wasn't so much that he had to, it's he took advantage of doing it. Ike gives in to toss out first ball Tuesday, read the headline of United Press report. From an Augusta, Georgia dateline, President Eisenhower yielded to terrific sports pressure today and agreed to attend the opening day baseball game of the American League in Washington Thursday to throw out the first pitch. What had happened was the original game had been rained out. Ike had to come back from his vacation, his golf vacation anyway, to give a speech. And so he gave the speech threw out the first ball, and then flew back to Augusta for the rest of his uh, vacation. Ultimately, Eisenhower made it through his presidency, racked up all those games of golf, but the norm had changed after he left the job, and that was seen in the behavior of his successor, John F. Kennedy. Kennedy was obsessive in his secrecy about playing the game. Von Atta compares his secrecy about golf to his secrecy about women. When he ran for president in 1960... Kennedy was basically running as a new generation against Eisenhower. He was going to be vigorous in office. He would not let photographers photograph him with any kind of golf implement in his hand. And Vanada in his book tells a story about just before a few days before the Democratic National Convention, he was Kennedy was playing golf on a par three and he hit the Dickens out of the ball, about 154 yards, and it landed on the green and it was rolling right towards the hole. It was about to be the wonderful hole-in-one shot. And his, the guy he was playing with, uh, Red Fay Jr., was yelling, go in, go in, go in. Kennedy, he described, looked stricken with terror as the ball approached the hole for the, for the dream shot. And when it stopped just short of the hole, Kennedy exhaled and said, you're yelling for that damn ball to go into the hole, and I'm watching a promising political career coming to an end. If that ball had gone into the hole in less than an hour, the word would be out to the nation that another golfer was trying to get into the White House. That's it for this edition of Whistle Stop. We'd love to hear what you think. Send a an email to whistlestop at slate.com or or and or and or you can leave us a review on the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank, the managing producer of Slate Podcast is June Thomas. The executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Our Whistle Stop Cracker Jack historian is Brian Rosenwald, one of the editors-in-chief of Made by History, a Washington Post history section. 
He is always on par. And thanks to Dustin Gervais at CBS Radio, who hooked us all up with all of this. Thanks for listening in, everyone. I'm John Dickerson of CBS This Morning. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with another edition of Whistle Stop. Whistle Stop.